Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. This episode of The Checkup discusses highly sensitive topics, including death and suicide. If you find this episode triggering, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome to episode 24 of The Checkup. My name is Demi Peters, and I'm an associate at BN in the Hobart Insurance and Health Law team. Today, we are speaking about voluntary assisted dying, which is a topical issue in Australia at the moment. As of now, voluntary assisted dying legislation has passed in all states in Australia. The legislation in Victoria, Western Australia and Tasmania is already in effect with Queensland and South Australian legislation to come into force in January 2023 and New South Wales legislation in November 2023. And in the past week, there's been a really significant development with the federal parliament overturning the ban on the Northern Territory and ACT making laws on assisted dying. So given that all Australian states now have laws and it's likely that assisted dying will soon be available to Australians in the territories too. Today, we are going to explore the legislation and consider the impacts and obligations it places on medical practitioners implementing voluntary assisted dying in practice. My first guest for today is the amazing Samantha Pillay, a health law principal at BN, based in our Brisbane office and author of the recently released LexisNexis Quick Reference Card for Voluntary Assisted Dying Laws in Australia. Sam will talk us through some of the basics of the voluntary assisted dying legislation in respect of access and administration. My second guest is Ruthie Jonore, a PhD student at QUT. Ruthie will talk us through some of the interesting aspects and intricacies of the legislation and the obligation it places on medical practitioners. This is particularly pertinent given Ruthie was part of the team that has written the mandatory training for participating practitioners in WA and Queensland. First to Sam. Sam, thank you for your time today. Hi, Demi. Before we explore some interesting intricacies of the legislation with Ruthie, could you please bring us back to basics and give us a quick overview of what voluntary assisted dying is and the requirements for accessing it around the country? Thanks, Demi. Well, to start with, what are we talking about here? What is voluntary assisted dying? Well, essentially, it's a legal way to use medicine to help someone who is dying to control when and how they die. In Australia, as a general rule, it's unlawful to intentionally cause the death of another person. So assisting another person to die can result in a criminal conviction. Listeners of the checkup may recall the conversation between Milica and Katrine Del Villar of QUT in episode 22 of the checkup, where they discussed the line between voluntary assisted dying and criminal conviction. For those who haven't, I highly recommend it. A great conversation. And a colleague of Ruthie Genere's as well. Exception, and so an exception to this criminal liability is now provided by voluntary assisted dying legislation, which has now been passed, as Demi said, in all Australian states. The legislation effectively provides a legal process for health practitioners to assist a terminally ill person to end their life in limited circumstances and subject to completing a prescribed process. Voluntary assisted dying in Australia kicked off in Victoria, which was the first state in Australia to pass 
voluntary assisted dying legislation in 2017. This had been done before overseas in one form or another, in some jurisdictions, including Belgium, Netherlands, Spain, Switzerland, Germany, 11 US states and Canada. In Australia, each state is slightly different, although for the most part, all the state's legislation is loosely based off the Victorian model, with either minor or sometimes significant tweaks. Mm. The legislation sets out who is eligible, what processes they need to follow, and puts in place a number of safeguards for the process. So in terms of eligibility, across all the states, voluntary assisted dying is available to those who meet certain criteria. These include, firstly, they're adults, which means aged 18 years and older. So it's not something that's available to children or teens who haven't yet turned 18. Okay. Um, They must comply with certain residency requirements, and these vary quite a bit between states and have been the subject already of um, tribunal application in Victoria. They must have been assessed by at least two medical practitioners, have a diagnosed disease, medical condition or illness that is advanced and will cause their death. The illness or condition, and in Tasmania it also includes an injury, um, must be expected to cause their death within either six or 12 months, depending on which state they're in, and it must be causing them intolerable suffering. The person must have decision-making capacity. They must have made an enduring request or multiple requests for voluntary assisted dying, and they must be acting voluntarily and without coercion. So these are the general eligibility requirements, which are broadly consistent across the states. So if someone meets all of these requirements that you've just mentioned, they can then access voluntary assisted dying? Yeah, subject to the application process then being followed, and that's pretty detailed, the legislation allows for then either self-administration or practitioner administration of a voluntary assisted dying substance. Now, voluntary assisted dying substance is the medication that will cause death. Um, and I say will cause death because those in the know about the medications and the doses involved, which is generally secret, assure us that there's no room for doubt there. Mm. In the case of self-administration, the person has dispensed the medication from the pharmacy and they are then able to choose when and where they take it. Other people, such as friends and family, can be present, but they're not allowed to assist with the actual administration of the medication, although in some states they can help with mixing the medication, for example. Okay, so when someone dies by voluntary assisted dying, what is then the cause of death? Oh, that's a great question. The underlying terminal condition is generally regarded as the cause of death and voluntary assisted dying as the manner of death. In some states, um, Western Australia and Queensland, the cause of death certificate is not allowed to refer at all to the fact that the person accessed voluntary assisted dying. And in okay. this way, it, it protects people's confidentiality yeah. and privacy, noting that it can sometimes be a um, controversial choice yes. that people yeah. don't always tell their friends and family about. New South Wales, however, will be different. And the cause of death certificate will identify both the underlying condition and the fact that voluntary assisted dying was used. A couple of other interesting things about the regimes. Uh, mentioned before, a person needs to have decision-making capacity, and this can become a real issue in some conditions, such mm. as those involving dementia. Now, all states acknowledge the presumption of decision-making capacity for adults, and all regimes potentially accommodate situations of fluctuating capacity, provided that the person is assessed as having decision-making capacity at each of the critical points in the process. Another interesting concept is the idea of an incurable condition. So in Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania, the legislation specifically states the disease must be incurable. Um, Whether something is incurable was intended to be an objective test based on available medical treatments. 
However, there's necessarily a subjective element to this as well, as it's also about treatments the person considers tolerable. So in some legislation, this is explicitly stated, but in others, it's part of the policy considerations or expert reports prepared before. So the upshot of that is a person can refuse um, a potentially life-sustaining treatment and it may be relevant in cases of chemotherapy or intensive radiotherapy, but their condition may also still be regarded as incurable for the purposes of the regime, depending on the circumstances. There are actually many, many more interesting points to discuss, but I know that you and Ruthie are going to delve into some of those in a moment. Thanks, Sam, for that overview. It's a really interesting topic and look forward to discussing it more. Thanks, Demi. Yeah, it's a really interesting time right now as we see the implementation of voluntary assisted dying rolling out across the country. Um, be watching with great interest how some aspects of the legislation are applied or enforced in practice. Thanks, Sam. Hi, Ruthie, and welcome to The Checkup. Thank you for joining me today. This environment should feel very much like home for you, given you do your own podcast called Learn Me Right, which is a health law and bioethics podcast, very topical. And this topic is also something that you're very familiar with and is the subject of your PhD. Is that right? Yes. Thank you so much for the introduction and for having me on the wonderful podcast, Demi. That's exactly right. So my PhD is about patient and family experiences of voluntary assisted dying in Australia and Canada. I've been very fortunate to conduct 60 interviews with patients and their family caregivers in Victoria and in Canada, and Canada has had bad laws for a little bit longer than Australia. So the aim of these interviews is to understand family and patient perspectives about how the process, and particularly the legal process, has worked for them in practice. I've also been part of a wonderful team at QUT in the Australian Centre for Health Law Research that has, as you said, written the mandatory training that health professionals who are participating in VAG must complete. I was part of the team that wrote that training for WA and Queensland, led by project manager Catherine Waller and professors Lindy Wilmot and Ben White. Um, and others that are part of that team also wrote the Victorian training as well. Thanks, Ruthie. I look forward to hearing all the insightful things you have to say about the VAT laws. Now, we've just heard from Sam, who's walked us through some areas of the legislation, but there are some key aspects about the legislation that I think would be worthwhile exploring with you in more detail, and to shed some more light on how these aspects of the legislation work in practice for healthcare professionals. But before we do that, there has been a really interesting and recent development in voluntary assisted dying legislation, in that the federal parliament has overturned the ban on the Northern Territory or ACT making laws on voluntary assisted dying. Can you please tell us about that development, Ruthie? Yeah, so this podcast is very timely indeed because just last week on the 1st of December, the federal parliament passed the Restoring Territory Rights Bill 2022, which removed the barrier preventing the territories from legislating on VAD. To explain why this law needed to be passed, I'll just take a step back and provide a bit of context about the history of VAD laws in the territories. The Northern Territory was actually the first jurisdiction in the world to introduce legislation to allow euthanasia in 1995. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and the act was called the Rights of the Terminally Ill Act. The term euthanasia, though, isn't actually used that much anymore because it has very negative historical connotations and also because there are different types of euthanasia, such as active or passive or voluntary or involuntary. And so it can be quite confusing. Mm. Essentially, though, the term euthanasia 
is used to refer to a situation where one person, usually a doctor or other health professional, administers a medication to another person to end their life. Now, as Samantha explained earlier, this is generally called practitioner administration in the modern Australian voluntary assisted dying laws. Prior to the Northern Territory passing this law in 1995, no other jurisdiction allowed this. But Switzerland had allowed assisted suicide, and we'd we'd refer to that now as self-administration under the modern Australian VAD laws, and Switzerland allowed that for unselfish motives since 1942, but no jurisdiction had allowed a person to administer medication to another to end their life. How interesting, Ruthie. So what you're saying is the Northern Territory was the first in the world to allow a person to administer to another person a medication to end their life. Yeah, that's exactly right. So in response to the Northern Territory passing that act, the Rights of the Terminally Ill Act, the Commonwealth very quickly passed a law in 1997 which overturned that act. Now, a few people did actually access assisted dying under the Northern Territory law in the very short period that it was operational. And the Commonwealth was able to pass this law, which was called the Euthanasia Laws Act 1997, because the Constitution gives the Commonwealth power to make laws for the government of territories. But the Constitution doesn't give that power to the Commonwealth to make that kind of law for states, and that's why they've been able to make those laws over the last few years. There have been a number of attempts to remove this prohibition on the territory's passing laws, but they've not been successful. But now that the law has passed and the ban has been removed, the territories will be able to go through the parliamentary process and introduce VAD laws if they wish to do so. So the Northern Territory law I mentioned won't just automatically come back into effect. Um, They will have to go through that process of going through Parliament and passing a bill. And that's the Terminally Ill Act that you were referring to previously? Yeah, Yeah. that's right, the rights of the Terminally Ill Act. Uh, Northern Territory has indicated that, to my knowledge, doesn't have plans to consider introducing such a law, at least during this term of Parliament, but the ACT has indicated that it plans to do so and might introduce bad legislation in 2023 or 2024 after a consultation process. Thanks, Ruthie. That's really interesting and it'll be really interesting to see what type of approach they take, particularly given, as we'll get into, the intricacies and the differences between the various states across Australia. Now, I'd like to turn to the issue of conscientious objection, which is provided for under the legislation. I understand that this can be both at a practitioner and institution level. Could you please explain what conscientious objection is and the obligations firstly on practitioners? Thanks very much, Demi. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the voluntary assisted dying laws in each state protect conscientious objection of individual practitioners. So when I say conscientious objection, I'm talking here about when a doctor refuses to participate in a lawful procedure, in this case, voluntary assisted dying, because it fundamentally conflicts with their own morals or beliefs or values. So it's based on sincerely held beliefs rather than just inconvenience or discrimination. And it's not just medical practitioners who can conscientiously object. Other registered health practitioners may also object, but I will focus my comments today on medical practitioners. Now, as I said, each of the state laws protects this right in some way. Conscientious objection is also protected under the Medical Board of Australia Code of Conduct, specifically parts 3.4.6 and 3.4.7. 
The way that the VAD laws express this right varies from state to state, but essentially the laws allow practitioners to refuse to provide information about voluntary assisted dying or refuse to participate in any aspect of the process. However, in some, although not all states, practitioners who conscientiously object still need to take some steps to assist patients seeking access to VAD. Which makes sense from a duty of care perspective, doesn't it really? Could you now then perhaps walk us through the various obligations on practitioners in respect of each state on an individual basis then? Absolutely. So there aren't any obligations specifically in Victoria, South Australia or New South Wales, but I'll break down the obligations for WA, Tasmania and Queensland. In WA, all medical practitioners who receive a first request, including those who conscientiously object, must provide an information sheet to the patient in response to that request. Okay. In Tasmania, medical practitioners who conscientiously object must provide the person with the contact details of the VAD commission in response to the, the first request. And in Queensland, there are a couple of things that medical practitioners must do. So medical practitioners who receive a first request and conscientiously object must still inform the patient that there are other providers, practitioners or services that might be able to assist them. They also then need to provide the patient with information about a practitioner, provider or service that they reasonably believe is likely to be able to assist the patient or alternatively provide contact details for the VAD Care Navigator service. Okay, so if a practitioner fails to do all these things that you've mentioned, that would then be in breach of their obligations under the legislation? Yeah, spot on. So in all states, um, there are professional standards that are relevant and would still apply to doctors across all the states, even the ones that don't have those particular obligations. Okay. So the Medical Board of Australia Code of Conduct talks about how doctors can conscientiously object, but mustn't use an objection to impede access to lawful treatments or allow their moral or religious views to deny patients access to medical care. Under the national law, Failure to comply with professional standards, such as those set out in the MBA Code of Conduct, may be considered unprofessional conduct or even professional misconduct, and that could lead to a complaint to the Health Ombudsman or to APRA, depending on the jurisdiction. Ruthie, that's a really good breakdown of the obligations in respect of each state. Could you perhaps summarise this for us and let us know what really is the important things to know from a doctor's perspective when it comes to conscientious objection? Absolutely. So in summary, it's important for doctors to know their right to object is protected, but also to recognise that there are still some requirements in some states and that all doctors need to exercise any right to conscientiously object responsibly and in accordance with professional standards to ensure that they don't fall foul of their obligations. Okay, so that's when a medical practitioner objects individually themselves. And following on from that... What is the situation or how does it interplay between a practitioner who doesn't conscientiously object but they work for an institution who may do it themselves? That is a really interesting point and such a complex issue. So institutions aren't exactly the same as an individual person but many are founded around a shared ethic of care and many are faith-based. And sometimes institutions don't want to provide voluntary assisted dying, often because this might conflict with religious views about the appropriateness of voluntary assisted dying. Mm. What we've seen in Victoria and some other states is that the legislation is silent on the rights and obligations of entities to participate in VAD. 
This has meant that institutions have developed their own policies about how they will or won't participate in VAD. Okay. Many institutions have decided that they will not participate at all or that they won't allow their staff to have anything to do with VAD. So for instance, a patient may be in an institution, they raise VAD with a staff member, but that staff member will not be allowed to discuss VAD with the patient because the institutional position prohibits that. Okay, so in Queensland, South Australia and New South Wales, certain rights have been embedded in the legislation in relation to how institutions should respond to VAD in those circumstances. Can you explain what the laws say specifically in each of those states? Yeah, absolutely. And you're exactly right. Those three jurisdictions that you mentioned, Queensland, South Australia and New South Wales, have included some rights and obligations in their legislation about how institutions must respond if VAD is raised by a patient in the facility. And there are some steps that institutions are required to take. The laws are quite technical and dependent on the situation, but it can be summarised in a very general way as follows. Institutions will either need to allow access to another doctor or person willing to assist the patient, even if they do not allow their own staff to provide VAD, mm -hmm. or they'll need to help facilitate a transfer to another place. Now, this is to ensure that patients are able to get access, but that the rights of institutions are also respected. So it's a balancing act. Yeah. If you're a staff member in an institution, it's likely that your institution will have policies about how you should respond if that is raised. And so it's important for you to be aware of those policies. Of course. Yeah, what they do and don't allow. And if you're not aware of those policies, that could have implications for your employment at the facility. Mm. It sounds like a really technical area, but you've summarised it really quite clearly. So thank you for that, Ruthie. So we've spoken about the obligations on both practitioners and institutions in relation to objections. Another issue I want to explore with you is the intricacies of how VAD can be raised to patients and under what circumstances and how and why that could lead to professional misconduct claims. Such an interesting point, Demi, and one that has been criticised quite widely. As Samantha said at the start, all states in Australia have largely followed the Victorian model. So Victoria was first. And Victoria introduced a section into its law preventing health professionals from initiating discussions about VAD. The reasoning behind that was that it's important to ensure that accessing VAD is voluntary, that it's the individual's choice and that they're not pressured or coerced in any way into accessing it. And of course, we do know that there is a bit of a power imbalance between doctors and patients due to how much knowledge doctors mm. have and how sick and sometimes vulnerable patients are. The Victorian law goes so far as to specify that if you do initiate a conversation about VAD, this is unprofessional conduct under the national law. Other legislation, for example, in New South Wales, Tasmania and South Australia also specify that this can be unprofessional conduct or in New South Wales, even professional misconduct. Okay. The prohibition on initiating discussions about VAD is really unusual, I think, in the wider health law context because it's totally out of sync with the law on negligence and we would ordinarily expect doctors to provide the relevant or material information about treatment options available. And if doctors don't do that, well, that might fall within the domain of negligence. So this is a real departure from other laws in this area. Well, that's right, Ruthie. The duty of care of practitioners is to exercise reasonable care in the provision of their advice and treatment. And I can see what you're saying here about how imposing an obligation on a practitioner to not provide advice on particular treatment options is at odds with what the law expects from them from a duty of care perspective. Do you think this is why some of the other states have not imposed 
these obligations? I think some of the states that have legalised VAD since Victoria have taken a better approach, which does go some way to recognising how out of step this is with other laws. So states like WA, Tasmania, Queensland and New South Wales, but not South Australia, allow doctors and in some states also nurse practitioners and registered nurses to initiate a discussion with a patient about VAD but they are required to provide particular information at the same time. And that's often about treatment or palliative care options and the likely outcomes of that care and treatment. Okay. And in Tasmania, if it's raised by a nurse, they're required to explain that a medical practitioner is the most appropriate person to discuss VAD with. Other healthcare workers, and I do note that the terminology differs from state to state. So sometimes it's healthcare worker, sometimes registered health practitioner. Mm. Other healthcare workers aren't allowed to initiate the discussion. Okay. So it seems clear that not complying with the prohibitions or obligations around initiating discussions about VAD with patients can amount to unprofessional conduct or, as you've said, professional misconduct in some states, depending on which VAD legislation you're under. Can I then ask another question that flows on from that? I'm going to refer to you specifically to a section from the Tasmanian Voluntary Assisted Dying Legislation, which is section 135 of the End of Life Choices Voluntary Assisted Dying Act 2021. And I understand there's equivalent sections in legislation in other jurisdictions in Australia. But specifically that section provides that a person who in good faith and without negligence takes an action under that act, believing on reasonable grounds that it is in accordance with that act, they will not be liable for unprofessional conduct or professional misconduct in any proceeding or for contravention of any code of conduct or professional standards. Can you explain how this section and the equivalent sections in other jurisdictions work with against and balance against this prohibition or obligation on a practitioner around initiating discussions about that. It, it seems to me that it's a bit at odds with, with those obligations or prohibitions. You're exactly right that the Tassie Act and other acts around Australia do specify that practitioners who are acting in good faith and without negligence are protected from liability. I don't think that this would apply, in my opinion, to the provisions around initiating okay. discussions about that. That, I think, would still be unprofessional conduct or professional misconduct. Okay. One of the reasons I think that is that practitioners who are participating in VAT in every jurisdiction must undertake mandatory training, and okay. that training very clearly sets out that practitioners must not initiate discussions about VAT okay. and the circumstances in which they can and what information they have to provide. So it's very clear that they can't do that. Um, and if they did do that, then I don't think that that would fall within that good faith or without negligence provision okay. in the Tassie Act or other equivalents around okay. Australia. It is really difficult, though, because the VAD laws are so rigorous, which is a good thing. But it does mean that there are so many new obligations and requirements on doctors and other health professionals. And so it could certainly seem quite confronting or scary that there's so much to learn and that the stakes are really high. So you do raise a really important point that if you are acting in good faith and without negligence, you do have that protection under the Voluntary Assisted Dying Act. Okay. There are, of course, some instances where you're just not going to be protected and you could be subject to professional misconduct or unprofessional conduct claims or potentially criminal complaints. Mm. So let's take the Tasmanian example. If you induce someone to seek VAD or you induce someone to use the VAD substance, then the criminal law would apply and that's specifically included in the Tasmanian Act and uh, in others similarly. Mm -hmm. 
I'll also emphasise here that assisting someone to die outside the bounds of the voluntary assisted dying laws is unlawful and that would be covered by the general criminal law in each jurisdiction. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, each state has taken the approach of mandating training that health professionals who are participating in that must complete before they participate. So that really assists practitioners in understanding what their legal obligations are. And the approach of requiring training is actually very unique and Australia is one of the only places in the world that requires that. Wow, so it's really great to see and hear that health practitioners are being supported to navigate the complexities of this legislation and the various obligations on them through the mandatory training, particularly given how new the legislation is and how different it is across all the different jurisdictions. Now, I want to briefly touch on the issue of telehealth and how this may impact voluntary assisted dying. Whilst it's legal to commit or attempt to commit suicide, section 474.29 capital A of the Commonwealth Criminal Code makes it a criminal offence to use a carriage service such as the internet, emails, mobile and fixed telephones, for example, to make available or otherwise distribute material that counsels or incites committing suicide, provided the person intends to counsel or incite suicide. This could be problematic for the administration of voluntary assisted dying through telehealth Provisions in WA and Tasmania expressly permit telehealth for some voluntary assisted dying consultations, provided audio-visual means are used where the practitioner and patient can hear and see each other. But in contrast, the Victorian government's guidance includes an expectation that all voluntary assisted dying consultations and assessments occur face-to-face. How do you see telehealth and the voluntary assisted dying laws playing out in practice here. This is a really interesting issue and one that I have come across a lot in speaking with patients and family members in the interviews that I've been doing as part of my PhD. And I'll just take a moment to acknowledge that I did those interviews with Professor Ben White as part of a research project led by Ben. And that project includes a broader team. So Professor Lindy Wilmot, Dr Eliana Close, Madeline Archer and Casey Haining are the wonderful Australian team and there are also other collaborators overseas. And the project is funded by the Australian Research Council and looks at how voluntary assisted dying is regulated in three countries, Australia, Canada and Belgium. The first part of the project involves conducting interviews across those three countries and also analysing laws, policies and other documents to understand how assisted dying regulation is operating in each of those jurisdictions. The second part of the project is focused on how to optimally regulate assisted dying. So really considering how Australia could learn from those other two countries and analysing how the Australian regulation of assisted dying could be done better. And I'll also just mention that another of my colleagues, Dr. Katrine Delvilla, who's previously been on this checkup <laughs> podcast, has also written extensively, along with the other colleagues I mentioned, on this issue of telehealth. And I would highly recommend those papers as excellent reads. And Demi, I think those might be included in the show notes. Yes, definitely. We'll include the links to those papers in the show notes for sure. Awesome. Thanks, Demi. Now, the telehealth prohibition definitely has a big impact on patients seeking access to voluntary assisted dying. And as I've said, I've heard this firsthand in interviews and there are lots of anecdotal reports in the news. Often people will have to travel very long distances from rural areas multiple times, often in a lot of pain, in order to have consultations face-to-face. And this has, of course, been particularly tricky Mm. 
with COVID. So just to provide you with an example of how that might look in practice, speaking about the WA perspective in particular, one of the requirements in the legislation is that after each of the assessments by the doctors, if the patient is found eligible, particular information has to be provided, which includes information about the possible method of administration. Now, given how the criminal code works and the fact that it includes information about a method of committing suicide, that could potentially fall within the scope mm. of that kind of information. Okay. Now, in practice, that would mean that an ill patient in WA in a rural area might have to travel for the first assessment, for the second assessment, and then again, potentially for the administration of the substance. So that's multiple trips over a really long period of time. And it's someone who might be very, very ill. And as I said, mm. in a lot of pain. So it, it does have a real and significant impact in practice. Yes, of course. The difficulty is that states have carved out this lawful health option of voluntary assisted dying, which isn't suicide. So it's defined as being different from it. Suicide isn't defined, though, in the Commonwealth Criminal Code Act. Okay. And it could include voluntary assisted dying because there is some ambiguity about exactly in what circumstances that Commonwealth Act applies. And because, of course, the Constitution provides that where there is an inconsistency between a Commonwealth and state law, the Commonwealth law prevails to the extent of that inconsistency? That's exactly right. So Victoria's approach has been to ban the use of telehealth outright in relation to bad consultations, whereas other states like WA have done it on a case-by-case basis. So some things can occur via telehealth, whereas other things can't. But the key thing here is that practitioners are absolutely put in a position where they are at risk of breaching the law if they do use telehealth to communicate with their patients about VAD. Mm. And it's really tricky because doctors and health professionals generally are just so caring and so patient-focused. And to be in a situation where the patient has to travel so far when they're so unwell, potentially in so much pain, or to risk being personally prosecuted for breaching the Commonwealth Code is extremely difficult. And the only real solution here is to amend the Commonwealth law to protect doctors and health professionals. And as an aside, I do believe the Albanese government has signalled that it intends to do that. So I personally think that's great. Thanks, Ruthie. This feels like a really good point to end on. Thanks for having me, Demi. This has been such an insightful conversation about the voluntary assisted dying laws, and it's raised some really thought-provoking questions for myself and no doubt for our listeners. Thank you so much to both Sam Pillay and Ruthie Jonere for coming on the show and for providing their expert input. Wherever you sit in terms of your position for or against voluntary assisted dying, this is really an interesting time in the law. We are seeing an interplay of issues between crime and healthcare, and I look forward to seeing how voluntary assisted dying rolls out over the next year in Australia and the flow-on effects it will have when overlapping with other laws. Thanks for tuning into The Checkup. We have relevant links in our show notes, including the best way to reach out to me and our guests, Sam and Ruthie. And we welcome any feedback you might have or any health topics that you would like to know more about that we can cover on our next episode of The Checkup. Just head to banlaw.com.au to get in touch. And please let us know if you would like to be involved in The Checkup. Chat soon. <laughs>